0: Well, I do have um, two sermons left for you, this one, and then I won't be back next week, but the week after, um, I'll be back. And what I wanted to do is do kind of a two-week series um, that I've titled The Opportunity of Exile and kind of subtitled A Vision for Church in a New Cultural Moment. All right, we've kind of, um, the big series we've done, right, we did the Sermon on the Mount, we did the Seven Letters series, and those are all kind of a, a close-up look at Scripture. Um, it was very much, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was verse by verse, kind of working through uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Seven Letters one is similar, um, zoomed in really close up on the text. Um, but what I want to do for, for this two-week series is really zoom out. And kind of look at more of a kind of a meta picture of the scriptures, if you will. Um, Because there's something that's changed in our culture really in the past, 20 years, but even more heightened in the past five years, at least what I've kind of felt, three to five years. Uh, Maybe a good way to illustrate this is uh, I grew up in a um, small town outside of Sacramento, about 30 miles east of Sacramento, called Loomis. Uh, It is Little Loomis. It is a high school town, and so everything revolves around Del Oro High School. Uh, My dad went to that high school. Um, I had one of his girlfriends as a teacher when I went to that high school, one of his old girlfriends, old girlfriends. Uh, It's okay, Mom, don't worry. Um, but, uh, but everything was just this really small town. And so growing up, I, um, I had my hair cut um, by one guy for the first, like, 22 years of my life, Barber Bill. Uh, all right, Barber Bill, no joke. And Barber Bill, he actually cut my dad's hair when he was a kid. And, uh, and so when we moved, we moved to Napa, I had to find a new place. But even more dramatic, when we moved out to the Bay Area, um, at that point, just a couple years ago, I had had three people cut my hair. I had Barber Bill, my wife, who that didn't work out well, all right? I personally think she did it for a while and then I, she screwed up on purpose and like took a chunk out. I think she did it on purpose uh, so she didn't have to do it anymore. Uh, but I had Barber Bill, my wife, and then um, I, I had, had just kind of myself or this kind of intermediary guy. So, so when we moved to the Bay Area, I thought, I gotta find a new barber, which shouldn't be as traumatic as it is for me, but it was. It was like, what do I do with this? So I kind of searched and searched and you know, three, four weeks went by, getting a little shaggy. I'm like, all right, I got to do something. So, so I finally find this barber shop, and I found it on, on Yelp, and I was looking around, and there's a picture of Buster Posey got his hair cut there. So if it's good enough for Buster, it's good enough for me. Uh, so, so I made my way down there, and this was kind of a, a, a moment that I had that signified this kind of cultural change. As I'm, I'm sitting in this, uh, the, you know, the barber chair, and the guy's getting ready to cut my hair, and, and uh, so we, we kind of start striking up a conversation, and he asked the inevitable. asked question, you know, what do you do for a living? And, uh, you know, most of you can probably answer that without much anxiety. Um, but as a pastor, it brings all sorts of weird things you got to say. So, um, so I, I kind of said, you know, at that, you know, I'm still am a full-time student. So I kind of dodged it and said, oh, I'm a full-time student, you know, pursuing a master's. And he goes, oh, what are you studying? So I was like, all right, I knew it was coming. All right. So, so I, I tell him, I go, I'm studying theology and ethics. And he looks at me and he goes, what in the world is theology? Uh, like, no idea. Now, to me, I sat there, and that was a huge, like, cultural shift, right? It was something where we have now moved beyond, in my lifetime, it was a bit more that, that theology and being a pastor in church, there's been a bit of hostility to that kind of in my lifetime. But what that signified to me is really we've moved beyond the hostility to a bit of indifference, um, where they don't—he didn't have a context of what theology was. He wasn't hostile towards it. He just didn't know. Now I told him it's the study of God and all that, and then then we started talking about something else quickly. But uh, but it was it was this moment where I recognized that there's been a big shift. There has been a massive shift, and really again, I think it's accelerated in the past three to five years, but even more so in the past 20 years in the history of American um, church. And what I want to look at for these next two weeks is what do we do with this shift? What do we do? And and, and as we kind of get into this, there's a few um, things that I want to look at, but really a few disclaimers I want to throw out um, that I want you guys in the front of your mind as we explore this a bit. And the first is this. I want to encourage you to resist the urge to play the victim, okay? Resist the urge to play the victim, Our tendency in church is when things don't go our way, because we've had a cultural influence, a cultural position of power, for better or worse, I'll explain that there's probably a lot of worse things about that, Uh, but but for better or worse, we've had that voice. And so now that that voice is gone, we have a tendency to want to play the victim. And I just think we need to resist that. I think we need to resist that. The second urge is I think we need to resist, or the second disclaimer is we need to resist playing the blaming game. Right? It's easy for us to want to just settle in and say, oh, it's their fault. They did that or that part did this thing or whatever. But I think we need to resist that. We need to resist that, that victim mentality, that blaming mentality. And what I want to do for the next couple of weeks is simply say, this is where we are. This is a cultural moment that I think is, is a new season for the church. It's not good or bad. It just is. It's just where we are at. And I want to look at how do we live as the church in this new cultural context, because really what we'll find is it's not all that new in the history of the church, right? That it is, it is a similar thread, a similar metaphor that we've kind of had um, throughout the history of the church. And, and so again, I want to explore a bit of what that looks like for us um, today. How do we be the church going forward? And the, the, the phrase that that most sociologists have kind of used about this new era of church is this phrase, the post-Christian world. All right, and I believe that we live in a post-Christian world, that, that America's history, um, I, I would hesitate to say we're a Christian nation, but I will definitely say we were founded on Christian principles or Judeo-Christian principles, um, and we can have that Christian nation conversation later if you would like. Um, but I just don't know if nations can be Christian. I think nation or Christian is a noun more than an adjective, and so I don't know how that necessarily works. But we were certainly in a position in America's founding and through its history up to this point where it was commonplace to believe in Jesus and God. It was commonplace to hold the same moral ground that Christianity kind of espouses. It was commonplace for those principles to be kind of ingrained into our culture. And now we are at a place where it has just shifted, it is different. And we need to kind of begin to look at what does that mean. And um, in 2015, the Barna Research Group did a massive poll to find out where the most post-Christian city was in America. And the number one in 2015 was the San Francisco Bay Area. It was San Jose to essentially all the way up through the North Bay. And so, I mean, we are living right in the midst of it. Uh, I would guess, and this is totally a guess, um, taking kind of what I know about Napa when I was there, is when I was in Napa, 2% of Napa's population um, was churched, and so I'm going to guess that it's probably even less in San Francisco where I live now, is more around 1%, I would guess. And it's just this new culture we're in, and the church has to figure out what to do with that. And what I want to challenge over the next two weeks is that for, for when we, and, and a lot of this will be a bit, it might sound familiar because there's been bits and pieces as I've preached over the past year with you guys that this has come up because it's been bouncing in my head for about a year or two years, and I've been wanting to just put like a full like effort into it. And so some of it may sound familiar, um, it's because it's been in my mind, but, but I, want, I want to suggest that the metaphor that we approach the scripture, we have through the history of the church in America, we have picked up the metaphor in scripture of Israel in the Promised Land, right? We read with that kind of lens. We read with the vision that we are Israel. We equate kind of America and Israel, and we think that we are the Israel in the Promised Land, right? In the Promised Land, they had that they were the dominant culture. Right? They had the influence. They they had the political kind of power and all of that is that was the image we tend to read scripture with but what i want to suggest is for this new era going forward we need to not we need to leave that metaphor behind and instead pick up the metaphor of israel in exile all right israel in exile Okay, because all through the scriptures, really starting in Genesis with Adam and Eve, we see this image of exile, right? When they are cast from the Garden of Eden, they are sent by God into a sort of exile, right? And then we pick it up in Exodus. You'll see it in the wilderness. You'll see it later when after Israel does take the promised land, then the monarchy falls and Jerusalem's destroyed, and they are sent to Babylon in exile. I mean, all through the scriptures, this metaphor of the church in exile is laced throughout. And as you begin to read with maybe a new lens, a new perspective, you'll pick up on this. Um, first, Peter begins his letter by addressing it to the exiles. Um, Jeremiah, we'll look at, he writes a letter to the exiles. <coughs> but what I want to again suggest is that that's the metaphor we need to pick up. Now, a few things about exile before we really jump in is first, don't, and this should have been maybe another disclaimer, is make sure when I, when I teach today and, and in two weeks, is don't equate Israel with America. Okay, we like to equivocate those two things, but it's just not the case. Okay, America is not Israel. And I said this before, and I'll say it again, is our task as the church is not to turn America into the kingdom of God, but to be the kingdom of God within America. And that's a big distinction. That is a big distinction. And to me, it's a really important one for the church going forward. So make sure we're careful with that, okay? Israel is God's people, sometimes with a nation state, often without, right? I mean, we are, as the the kingdom of God, as believers, we are in some sense a part of Israel, God's people, okay? And so be careful not to equate those two, all right? But all of this really begins, we have to kind of do a bit of history um, before we get too far, Um, but really the history of what, Uh, Of what's, you know, that post Christian word is is really rooted in the term Christendom. And Christendom began all the way back in 331 AD when Constantine signed the Edict of Milan. Okay, what the Edict of Milan did is that outlawed violence against Christians. All right, now we we kind of think of that as a good thing, uh, but in reality, it was a political move by Constantine. It's 330 years after Jesus' death, the Christian movement was gaining steam. And so the the church went from 120, right, in the upper room after, you know, around Jesus' death. We see that 120 to this, really, they were an oppressed minority, but they had grown as that movement took off into more of a political majority. And so as that number grew, Constantine, being a smart politician he was, says, I need to make sure I'm on that side because that's a powerful group. And so he signs the Edict of Milan, and for the first time in church history, we see the faith, all right? We see Christianity in bed with empire, with the powers that be, with Rome. And that complicates things. Massively, right? So a little while later, Constantine converts to the faith. Um, again, highly disputed. I would probably argue it was another political move, um, but I'm not the one that gets to make those decisions, thankfully. Um, and so uh, he, he converts to Christianity. And again, we have this moment where Rome and Christianity are linked. That the, the success of Rome impacted the success of the church. And this creates all sorts of problems. Because as we read the scriptures, when the faith, um, really throughout the Old Testament is, is when, when Israel or when the people of God have power, we tend to not do very well with it. We tend to screw things up, right? Well, Christendom began in 331 AD. Fast forward all the way, and we really, we reigned. Christendom had its time for almost 1,500 years. By the time we get to the 17th and 18th century, we see the Enlightenment hit, Okay, the enlightenment begins to question these challenges or these presuppositions. We say, okay, maybe it's not necessarily God that's doing all this, but it's just we can figure things out on our own. Give us time, we'll sort out the answers of the world. That was kind of the promise of modernity, right? Modernity says any problem we have, give us time, we'll figure it out through science, through all of that, which were good things. It brought a lot of good. Okay, it did some damage, of course, but it did a lot of good. And so we see the scientific revolution, the democratic revolution, the industrial revolution. Um, and we're in the midst of a technological revolution. We see that going on. And, and really, all of that was the hope of progress. Is modernity prom- promised that, that hope is moving forward, that, that the world is going somewhere, that we will get to some sort of utopian existence if you just give us enough time? And that was kind of the promise. Well, the problem with that is World War I hit. The Holocaust, Apartheid, we see an, an atom bomb being dropped, we see World War II, we see all of this that the hope that was promised, we realized you know, we weren't maybe as, as good as we thought we were. It led to more and more and more devastation and wider devastation. And so we see that problem, and then we fast forward all the way to today, and really we're on the fringe of kind of post-modernity, and, and, and we're beginning to question the assumptions of modernity, saying, hey, wait, wait, wait that I want, like, those things, like, the Holocaust was bad inherently. We don't want to have a debate about that, right? And, and so post-modernity is challenging those things, saying, no, that was, that was evil. That was just pure evil. And we, and we were wrestling through that now. And so we, we, we fast forward again to today now, and we are that church that, that has had its time. For 1,500 years, Christendom kind of reigned, and now we're in this a bit of like transition. And I believe three kind of major shifts have taken place. This is um, from a guy named John Tyson. Um, I heard him talk about this out in New York, but he says that we've gone from a majority to a minority. All right, again, there was a time and, and, and when, when Christianity, people who would claim the faith, they were the majority culture. Okay, a survey in 2014 um, from the Pew Research Group um, de- de- declared that, that Protestants, right, were, were no longer a majority religion. What was claimed? That actually, the fastest growing group or religious claim um, is the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, okay? Uh, so the nuns, they claim no religious affiliation. That's the fastest growing religious group in America is the nuns. So we've gone from a majority to a minority, simply through numerical growth. The second, we've, we've moved from the center to the fringe. Okay, it wasn't all that long ago when, when Christianity, the church, was a cultural powerhouse. We were putting out art that was shaking the world. We were the foundation of educational institutions. I mean, we were the kind of cultural influence through writing, philosophy, artists, all of this. The church had its time. And we went, went from the center to the fringe of society. And then the last one is we've gone a bit from respected to disrespected. Right? I, would, I would guess that there's, there is more probably hostility um, it, for me to say I'm a pastor when I walk around San Francisco than there was 20 years ago. Now, San Francisco is a bit unique. It's always been a bit hostile um, ever since the days of Jim Jones and that whole thing. But, but we've gone from respected to disrespected. We're a bit more of the outcast now, the outlaws, if you will. And that it's just the kind of, the, again, the times we're in. And so we have to evaluate, what do we do with this? And again, I challenge it to say, don't pick up that victim mentality and say, poor us. Because listen, we had power for 1,500 years, so probably isn't the right posture to all of a sudden kind of play the victim in that. I just want to say, this is where we're at. This is the world we live in. How do we minister in this world? Um, a guy by the name of Lee Beach wrote a book on this topic um, called The Church in Exile, and this is the quote he has, or I brought. <clears throat> it says, in the post-Christian revolution, it's fair to say that the church is one of those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence at the cultural table, but has been chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. And right, I love that phrase, the, the former power broker. Because when, when Constantine signed the Edict of Milan and the church and them embedded one another, we began to assume that our role in, in the culture was to infect change politically. This is an important distinction, particularly in an election year. This is really important for the church to get. Is We have kind of bought the myth that the way we influence culture and influence the world is through political means. But what I want to argue that I've argued really through the Seven Letter series and even through the Sermon on the Mount series is that we are to be distinct from that. And we'll get into it towards the end about we use a different sort of power, a more of a power under than a power over, which we'll explain that a little later. But he says we had had, we had sat there, and now we are in a different place. We're no longer one of those power brokers, and we have to begin to kind of look at the life of the church differently. Um, well, Jeremiah, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. <coughs> Jeremiah 29, of course, we have Jeremiah 29, 11, which is a, uh, you know, an infamous verse. We'll, we'll look at that in a sec. Um, but Jeremiah 29 is a chapter where Jeremiah is writing a letter to the church in exile. Okay, so the recipient of this is Daniel. All right, think of Daniel in Babylon. He, would, he was a recipient of this letter. I would, you, you could probably make a good argument that J- this letter we're about to read is what gave Daniel the framework to exist and keep his identity under kind of Babylonian rule when he was in exile. Uh, okay, and, and, and so kind of envision this as we read. I think this is a, a letter that the church needs to kind of read to itself um, in this day and age. But we'll pick up in verse 4. <clears throat> Again, this is the letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. He's speaking on behalf of God. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's where the letter starts build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And he goes on and I don't have the time to go through it all, but I encourage you to read further. But notice the language, right? Imagine yourself as Daniel. You have been, as a young boy, you have been ripped from your context, ripped from your country, very much a refugee. And he finds himself in Babylon where they are are quite literally going through a process of social engineering. They are trying to strip Daniel of his identity as an Israelite, as a Jew, They are working to strip that out, to impose the Babylonian kind of influence on him. And Jeremiah writes this letter. So Daniel is sitting there and he's thinking, how long will I be here? Will I be here forever? Am I going to be stuck here? Is this the rest of my story? And so he's processing all of this thinking, how do I can maintain my identity? Psalm 137, we'll look at next week. The poet is writing from exile and he says, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I love that because he's saying, how do we still be the kingdom of God in a land that is drastically different than the one I knew? And notice the language. Nowhere in this letter is there a hint of take back the culture. There isn't any sort of take up arms and battle back and take your country back. There's none of that. The language Jeremiah uses is instead he says, build houses, live in them. Marry your, your, let your sons and daughters marry. Have grandkids here. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. He says, because you need to seek the welfare. And that word welfare is shalom, it means peace and wholeness. It's seek the shalom of the city, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The message to the exiles, and I think the message to us in our time, is that we don't need to retreat and run away or fight back and take it back for us. But instead, we need to be that distinct culture, that distinct society within the culture where we don't lose our identity, but we also, we, we, we build houses. We root ourselves there. We love our, we love Sebastopol. We love the Bay Area. We are the the prominent, like, if we could be an influence of love in the space, we find that's what Jeremiah is calling them to. He says, build houses, plant gardens, root yourself there. All right, and then we'll go on, and I just want to say a note on 2911, because it's such a prominent verse, it is recognized, right? We love that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper, to give you a hope and a future. Right, We put that on everything. We put it on coffee, on coffee mugs. We we paint it on our walls, all of that, which it is a good verse, but recognize that it's written to a church in exile. The plans God had for Israel that were to, to flourish was for Jerusalem to be destroyed, for their home to be taken, and for them to be desolate in exile. God's vision of goodness may be a lot different than us. Exile, every time, is God initiated. Exile, and you'll, you'll read here, and he'll, he'll, you know, he said it towards the beginning, he says um, in verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of, of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile. Okay, God sent them into es- exile. Not because of, or, or to put it in our context, is I think we are in exile because the church has failed to be the church not because of what they out there have done, not because of our thoughts about maybe the direction America's gone and all that sort of thing. No, exile is about God instructing the church and saying, you've lost the narrative. You've lost what this is about. And so God sends them into exile. And every time the church is in exile is when it generally thrives too. It renews itself. It remembers who it is. It's where we begin to do some of our most foundational writing of the scriptures was from exile. It is, exile is a space not of necessarily punishment per se, but it's where God reminds us of what we are and who we are supposed to be. And so he takes us into exile and says, let's renew ourselves, let's purify ourselves. And for Daniel, right, for Daniel, what we didn't get to read is that exile was going to be his story. His grandkids may come out of exile, but he wasn't going to. And I think for us in this time, we have to recognize, you know what? The rest of our lives, we may be a church in exile. Our grandkids may may have a different story, but we will be in exile. Um, There's a guy by the name of Dwayne Friesen who wrote um, a fantastic book called Artists, Citizens, and Philosophers. And uh, it's all about this idea of how do we seek the shalom of the city? And he says this. He says, the church is shaped by a vision of God's kingdom, the ordering of human life by an alternate vision. Christians belong to the church, the body of Christ, a community that confesses loyalty to Jesus Christ, who calls it to live a way of life that places Christians in profound tension with many fundamental values of the larger culture. Christians belong to an alternative culture, the people of God, a society not identical with family or citizenship. He says the foundation of our identity is not in family or citizenship, Okay? The reason we are the king of, uh, kingdom of God isn't because the family you're born into, its heritage, any of that, or because of the country you reside in. The beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is what we see in Revelation when every knee will bow, every tongue confess from all nations. Israel's role was to be a blessing to all nations. And so because of that, we cannot take up the identity of one nation because that puts us at odds with the others. Instead, we are this distinct social kind of alternative rooted in the teachings of Jesus. What again, what I would argue, the Sermon on the Mount is that is the root of our ethic, the root of the way we live, the root of the way we interact with the world. And, and again, he says the same thing. He says, that is our identity. And again, I think somewhere along the way we've lost the narrative a bit. And I would argue it's because we had political power for a long time. And it's 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 hard to give that up once you have it. And there's a lot of good that happened in that. Every empire we've seen throughout the history has had a lot of good and a lot of bad. Think of what Rome has done for the world. I mean, they invented roads for heaven's sakes. Like, that's a good thing, right? But at the same time, Rome had a lot of bad about it. See that with Egypt, see it with Babylon, and I would say we see it with America. A lot of good. There's been times we've done some bad. That's just History. That's history. And so when the church ties itself to that, again, we find some issues with that. Instead, the church exists as this kind of alternative narrative. And so what I want to do for it to close and what we'll do in two weeks is we'll put a bit more kind of flesh on it, if you will. We'll put a little more grip on what it is. But I just want to look quickly at the narrative of the scriptures. What is the beginning of our story because I think God is pulling us into exile. He's taking us into exile I'll say, remember who you are. Um, so flip to Exodus chapter 3. Um, Exodus, by, um, for the Jewish community, is actually considered kind of the first book of the Bible. Um, Genesis is more of a preface to Exodus. And so uh, when, when the Jewish community kind of thinks of the narrative, for them it begins with Exodus. Um, and so I want to kind of begin there as well just to, to see that. And again, this is a familiar story um, that we've heard before. Um, but let's pe- pick up in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. It says then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And yes, I practice that. Uh, and now behold, verse nine. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The story of the people of God begins with them enslaved to a dominant culture. It begins with them making bricks seven days a week, every hour of every day for Pharaoh who is oppressing them and continuing to strip them of their identity. That is where our story starts. Now, something fundamental happens here in, uh, in verse, um, let's see, verse 7. It says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. This is a new idea at this time in the history of religion where God hears the cry of his people. Every other religion was about you do something to hopefully get the attention of God. You, you act a certain way. You do a certain way. You then please that God. But this is a God who hears the cry of his people. He listens to the oppressed. He listens to those. And, and we get this backwards sometimes, right? God goes in, saves them. And what we'll look at in a second is in Exodus 19, he then gives them the commands, Israel had done nothing, nothing on their own. They were an oppressed people that were simply looking to the heavens saying, why us, why us? And God says, that's not okay, I hear, and he responds. Now, we know the story, right? Moses is gonna go before Pharaoh, the plagues happen, we cross the Red Sea in a pretty dramatic way, we get out into the wilderness, right? Notice that God doesn't, have Israel overthrow Egypt. God chooses not for them to take power over the world power at the time, but instead draws them out of that dominant culture to create and form a people. He brings them out, crosses the Red Sea. They wander around in the desert. And what's interesting, right, is even then is Israel longs to go back. They get in the wilderness and they go, man, wasn't it great when we were in Egypt, right, where they were enslaved? I think it's because they wanted what Egypt had, personally, because we see that through the history of Israel. We see that when, 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 when Jesus declares that he's gonna be killed, Peter's like, no, 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 because his vision was for a political powerhouse. He thought Jesus was gonna come overthrow Rome and Israel would have the power. But over and over, God says, no, you are to be distinct and alternative, a blessing to all the nations. So he pulls them out and he gives us. And one of the questions we have to ask is, how did Pharaoh become Pharaoh? Because that's a big issue, right? And that really goes to the development of sin. And so we begin in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have the first sin, an individual action that causes all sorts of repercussions, Right? They sin, and that then escalates. Right By chapter four, we made it all of four chapters before humans started murdering one another. Awesome job, us. We nailed it, right? Chapter four, Cain and Abel. Chapter five, we see the five through eight, we see the flood, right, where evil would kind of get, continued to grow, uh, grow throughout the world. And then we get to chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And all of a sudden, that individual sin has escalated and grown into a full-on systemic issue. So I think there are two elements to sin. There is an individual action that we do, but there's also a systemic issue that this sin is always growing towards this. And again, my guess is because it gets a bit drunk on power. And so it grows and it grows and it grows, and it wants to do that. Sin is always pulling towards a systemic problem. And so we see it in Exodus 3 where all of a sudden it has grown, it has picked up a head of steam, and we see Pharaoh, the world power, oppressing an entire people group. Over a million people, a million Israelites walked out of of Egypt. That is a massive, massive issue. And so I think for us, when we remember the narrative, maybe the first thing we have to think of is church. I think the church needs to listen more. God hears the cry of the oppressed. I think one of the things that the church in America has struggled with is we don't know how to listen to others. Church, I think one of the, the best things we can do is to not always correct people, but just say, you know what, I want to hear you. I want to hear the cry of the oppressed the one who's different than me, the one who's had a different experience in America. I think we need to listen before we talk. My dad, he worked at UPS for like 25 years, and he had all these weird sayings, like little fortune cookie sayings he would tell his um, drivers and stuff. And one of the ones that he stuck with me, and this will make him proud that I remember, uh, is seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think that's really good. And church, I think for, for us, we need to recover that piece of the narrative. We need to remember that we're a people like God who listen first, hear the cry. We need to be seeking the cry of the oppressed. And so Israel goes through that. They go all the way, um, flip over to Exodus 19. They get out of Egypt, right? And they they, they wander for a bit. And then they come to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a massive moment in, again, in the Christian story. Um, And at Mount Sinai, a couple things happen. First of all, um, God brings them to the wilderness. I think it's important that we note the wilderness because in the wilderness, no one can take claim or ownership. No nation state can say, that's mine at this point. It is desolate. It is nobody's space. He brings them to this space where no one can take claim and he is going to form a people. And so he brings them to Sinai. And this is what we have in Exodus 19 verses one through six. Says on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Notice how frequently wilderness is mentioned there. There Israel encamped before the mountain, and while Moses went up to up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, "Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel." You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The first thing God does is he brings Moses up and he says, remember who you are. Over and over in the Old Testament, God will say, remember who I am, remember what I did. There's a great passage. I think it's the end of Exodus, might be the beginning of Joshua, but it's when the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, and God gathers the nation of Israel, and He says, You're about to go in. You're going to experience wealth and success. You're going to have your own space for the first time. And He says, All of these things are going to happen. And He says, When that does, He says, Don't forget what I've done. Don't forget that you were in slavery that it was because of grace, because of nothing of your own doing that I went in, I rescued you. Church, we have to remember that the the story we we came from is that of people of desolation, of refugees, of being pulled from a dominant culture. God says, when you have that success, when you have that wealth, when you have your own space, when you get that position of power, your tendency is to want to think you did it and forget what God has done. And so over over and over, he reminds us, saying, listen, remember what I did in Egypt. Remember what I did in Egypt. And then he goes on. I'm in verse 4, or in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. All right, and so he gives them two tasks, which is where I want to end today. As he begins by saying, you will be a kingdom of priests. All right, what do priests do? Priests mediate the divine. Right, they work as an in-between between God and the people. That the fundamental role of a priest is to be, essentially be the presence in a metaphorical way, be the presence of God to the world. Church, I think one of our, our root roles, the thing that we kind of put our stake in the ground in is that we are a kingdom of priests. That means we embody the essence of God to the world around us. One of the other main roles for a priest was they would be involved in the sacrificial system. They would facilitate that. And I think what God's saying there is, as a kingdom of priests, we'll deal with that individual sin that I talked about. That the priests, they are the ones who dealt with that, who handled the sacrifice, all of that. And he is saying that you as a church, you are the essence, the presence of God. You work in that individual sin element to deal with that. But then secondly, he says you are a holy nation. Right? He says this holy nation, the word holy just means set apart. All right, we get kind of caught up on that about, but that's, at, at its core, that's what it means, is set apart. He says, you are a nation that will function differently than anything else that the kingdoms of the world have to offer. And he throws that word nation in there because I think he's pointing towards that systemic issue. He says, you are a people that will deal with systemic sin in a different way than anyone else in the world. You will have eyes to see that. You will not stand by and allow that. In the same sense that, that we dealt with the individual saying, God says, as a holy nation, you will deal with the systemic issue as well. So the question we ask is then, how does a holy nation function? Well, I mentioned before that I think nations um, of this world function with a power over, Right? There's two kinds of like, ways you could deal with power. And I think the kingdoms of this world, governments and all that, they work with a power over. And I stole that phrase from Greg Boyd, um, an author. And so he says that all government at its core is coercive. Okay? Coercive, not necessarily in a strictly negative turn. All right, I saw a lot of head nods when I said that. All right, Certainly that's an element of it. But I don't mean it in that way. I mean it in you go t- you know, 15 miles over the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket. And they're hoping that that will change my behavior. That's just the, the only way that power over can function, that governments can work. Well, we serve a God who didn't use power over, who actually resisted any opportunity to do power over. Think of the temptation of Jesus. When Satan takes him up and says, hey, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me. And he resists that. He says, I don't want that kind of power. Instead, he takes a power under. And what we mean by power under is a posture of service. Think of the way Jesus ministered. Think of, I mean, he would say things like, seek first, you know, the first will be last. I came not to be served, but to serve. That, that the cross is not just a way to the kingdom, I would argue it is the kingdom. That Jesus' posture of of nonviolence, of serving, of living in a way where he uses power under to influence, that is how a holy nation functions. It's a Jesus who got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. It's the picture of the, 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 the father and the prodigal son sprinting after the son That is an act of service. That the kingdom of God, the way we function as a holy nation, is not to, to utilize this power over this coercive mentality because that's not how we exist. We exist in a power under posture. So listen, do we vote? Absolutely. Absolutely. Individually, I think we all should be involved. That is a privilege in this world to have that right. Many, many have fought and died across the world for, for democracy, for the right to have a say in our government. We absolutely should be involved. That's part of being a citizen, of seeking the shalom of the city. But the church should be an apolitical entity. I really think that it should, it should be, a, 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 as a whole, something that exists outside of that. We function for social change in a much different way, with this power under service mentality, remembering the narrative that God hears the cries of the oppressed, and then he went and he saves. He works in much different ways. Church, that's our posture as a holy nation, to live differently, to use a different sort of power. So in two weeks, um, like I said, we'll put a little more flesh on it. There's, there's much more to be said about how we approach work, how we approach social change that, that I want to look at because there is um, much to do. And I really do. I, the optimist in me made me call it the opportunity of exile. But I really at my core believe um, that the church has an opportunity to remember what it was supposed to be, to recover that narrative. Um, and so, in two weeks, we'll we'll open this back up and we'll look at it, and I'll um, hopefully help. Maybe um, not answer all your questions because I don't want to do that, uh, but give you maybe a little more grip on uh, what this this time in exile means. Um, but my prayer for us this morning, as we prepare for communion, is when I finish in in prayer here, someone's gonna come up and share a communion meditation. But but I think for us today, some of us need to cry out to God. We need out of an Egypt. Egypt is there, it is oppressing us. There's something in your life where where you are crying out to God and I want to assure you this morning that God hears your cry. I think for some of us, we need to come to communion and we need to repent and say, God, I need the Egypt out of me. We have rested on maybe ways where we've lost, we've mixed it with ways of the world and we've gotten caught in trying to grasp at political power or this power over mentality and I think some of us, we need to spend some time in prayer just saying, God, I need Egypt out of me. There's a lot of Egypt in us. So we repent and we come to communion in that. Um, so like I said, I'm going to pray. Um, I think one, one of these men here are coming up to share some communion thoughts as well. Um, but let me pray for us as we, as we do prepare for that. <clears throat> so Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, God, I thank you for, um, Lord, who you are, for your patience and your grace. God, I thank you for hearing our cry when we call out. God, for forgiving us of sin, of mistakes we made. I thank you for your patience and your grace with us. Lord, as we struggle to figure out what it means to be the kingdom of God in a new age, Lord, may, may you continue that grace over us. Um, Lord, because we'll make mistakes, we'll do the wrong thing, we'll think the wrong way. Lord, and, and just forgive us of that. Help us direct, to direct us in the right way. Um, so, Lord, we, just, we thank you for the space of, of communion, the space of church to sing and to worship and be together. Um, Lord, may you shape us more and more into who you want us to be as a community, Lord, as a kingdom of God. So we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. I'd like to just add a parenthetic remark to what Dan had to say earlier about the elders and the, and the board members and the, and the deacons and so on. Give them a thank you. There's been a lot of work put into choosing this new minister who's gonna be ours, and there's always work going on behind the the scenes that we don't see. Just say thanks to the folks. It's not why they work, but it doesn't hurt anything either. Okay, my name is Rick Rivers, and if you don't believe I have opinions, just ask Francine, she'll tell you. Uh, Oftentimes, as we celebrate communion, I can't help but look back at the Rick Rivers who started attending this church 30 something years ago. Man who thought he had control of his life, I nevertheless subscribed to Titus 3.3 where it says, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled by others and became slaves to many wicked desires and evil pleasures. Our lives were full of envy. We hated others and they hated us. In his own way, and in accordance with divine providence, the Lord decided that this Rivers kid needed a little straightening out. He introduced me to Rick Hahn, my sponsor, my mentor, my amigo, my icone, which is friend in Hawaiian. Rick started me in Bible studies, which led to belief, which led to a hunger to know the Lord. As I grew in my knowledge of the Lord, I realized all over again what a wonderful lady that, that, that God had given me in Franny. And as we read the Bible together, we both grew in our love of the Lord and and of one another. A Bible study was started in our home, and 30 years later, it's still going. Why did God do this? Once again, according to Titus, quote, He showed us His kindness and His love. He saved us not because of the good things we did, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins and gave us a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, did. He declared us not guilty because of his great kindness. And now we know that we will inherit eternal life. Jesus tells us as we celebrate communion to, quote, do this in remembrance of me, unquote. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood, that blood which symbolizes the new covenant between man and God. As we celebrate communion, we should be righteously thankful for God's mercy, his forgiveness of our sins, and the new life he has given us. Do this in remembrance of He, He being Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so very much for the love that You have always shown for us. Although we're not worthy of it, You have given us patience, You've given us encouragement and love. We just pray that You will continue to be patient with us and encourage us as we uh, share the good news with other folks and see the cause of Christ come back strong.